Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's thank God for this past week. God, you're so good to us that you would call us to your mission to go and declare the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, to the ends of the earth for the sake of your glory. And you've called us out of your grace. So we thank you, O oh God, for using frail, broken vessels such as we. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve to be on this cool of a mission with you. But you've poured out your mercy and grace on us. You've turned fear and shame and guilt into love and mercy and grace. And we pray, O oh God, that you would continue to fill us with the holy passion of zeal to tell other people in this community and around the world about your son Jesus and about his amazing rescue plan. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill our teens with a constant desire to share the good news with their friends, with their neighbors, with their classmates, with their coworkers. We pray, O oh God, that you would go before us as we go out into this downriver area, that you would prepare hearts to hear the gospel through the work of your spirit. We pray, O oh God, that right now, tonight, as we thank you, as we lift praise to you, we ask that you would change us through your word. We pray, O oh God, that we would walk out of here different than when we came in, so that when people see us, they see your son Jesus in us. For your glory and the name of your son Jesus Christ, our Savior and friend, we pray. Amen. This past May, not even more than two months ago, David Gonzalez was remodeling a house in Hoffman, Minnesota that he bought for $10,100. He bought this old house for $10,100 and he was busy remodeling it, tearing out old insulation in the ceiling and in the walls. And when he uncovered some newspapers in the insulation, he found a comic book. Not just any comic book. The comic book. The comic book that's considered the holy grail of all comic books. Action Comics, number one edition, 1938. How many of you can tell me what that comic book is all about? Say it louder. Say it louder. Superman. That number one edition, 1938, of Action Comics was the comic book that introduced the Man of Steel to the world. There were only about 100 issues still in existence. Only a hundred in existence today. Not, not all that long ago, one edition sold for $2.16 million. So when David Gonzalez found this comic book, he was pretty excited. Didn't really know exactly what he had on his hands because he's not a comic book collector. But he called some of his relatives over, including his wife's aunt. The story goes on. His wife's aunt got into like a little tug-of-war match with him over this comic book because she wanted to share the profits. And so he got fed up and said, well, I'm going to burn the comic book if, I don't, if we don't stop arguing. And he tore it out of her hands and ripped the back cover off of it and threw it on a table. Yeah. So that probably was judged to be about a $75,000 tear at the very least, maybe a lot more. He sold it last month for $175,000. Not too shabby, 
not too shabby, $175,000 found in a house that he only paid $10,100 for. But it could have been a lot more. Could have been a lot more. Near mint condition, just sold for $2.16 million. He tears the back cover off, probably crumbled other bits and pieces. Well, I remember when I heard that story on the radio. It's like the, my, the air in my lungs just went ah, out. I'm like, nuts. What a silly argument. To lose $75,000 or $100,000 over a crazy argument because you wanted to tear it out of your wife's aunt's hands. I don't know. People do crazy things. But the shocking value of that comic book, I couldn't get that out of my mind. Imagine if you or if me had a million-dollar comic book. Can you, maybe like you, you're thinking, as I shared that story, what you would have done if you found the comic book in a house that you were modeling, what you would have done with it. And I thought about what I would have done with a comic book like that. If, if you came over my house, you would have seen the comic book. First, I probably would have bought insurance for the, for the comic book. But then it would have been in some framed, air-encased, kind of special construction, probably, probably mounted somehow so that nothing would deteriorate it anymore. And if you came over to my house, if Tavio came over to my house, it'd be like, you want to see the comic book? You want to see the comic book? Yeah. And, <laughs> thank you. And, and so I would share the comic book, you know, show you it very delicately. And probably subtly, but not so subtly, I would tell you how I found the comic book, how cool it was, how remarkable a find it was, how rare it was, how much it was worth probably, and all this stuff, and go on and on and on and on and on. And I'd probably start frequenting comic book shows, which I've never done in my life. But if I found a comic book like that, I would probably go around and start telling people, I got this million-dollar comic book. Maybe you guys would do the same thing, or maybe you'd sell it and retire. I don't know. But you still would probably tell that story to everybody who came near you. Why am I not like that about the endless, immense, incomparable worth of Jesus Christ? Fiction, fact. Reality, story. Why am I not that way about the endless, immense, incomparable worth and value of Jesus Christ? Why do I just get so sucked into a story like that? And it's not that... Superman's bad, or that it wouldn't be really cool to find a comic book in an old house. We bought a 143-year-old house, and I was hoping we'd find something in the walls, but we didn't. But man, that would be neat. But I don't tell everybody about Jesus Christ like I would if I found a million-dollar comic book in my house. We seem to have Bibles coming out of our ears that tell about the amazing worth of Jesus Christ, his value, his supremacy, his amazing work for us and for our salvation. But it's as if the good news of Jesus rarely exits our mouths when we're around the unsaved. This week we've been sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. But it's all too easy to fall into the trap of kind of a one-week special event. And that's when I, in a confined, safe environment, share with 
others about Jesus Christ. That's when I tell his story. And the rest of the year, I just go about life and I do my thing and I go to my job. And I'm more excited about maybe getting a raise than I am about going on a mission trip to tell people about Jesus Christ who maybe have never heard. And this is as much of a personal confessional for me as I think maybe for some of you. We would be really easily excited about a highly valuable find. But Jesus Christ found us and pulled us out of cesspool of our sin. Here's what I think. Here's why I think that you and I often fail to tell people about the amazing worth and value of Jesus Christ, I think it's because our picture of Christ has become puny, has become whittled down, has maybe shrunk down. And we get focused in on all of the system that the world revolves around. We start plinking our pennies and saving our dollars, hoping for that day ahead when we'll get rest and we'll get relaxation, we'll be able to use the personal treasure that we stored up for ourselves. And we're focused on that rather than on the immense value and worth of Jesus Christ alone. And our picture of Christ, the portrait of Christ in our minds and in our hearts, grows dim, gets smaller, and we lose sight of how valuable, how much worth, how supreme he really is. The ancient believers in the city of Colossae were surrounded by people who were diminishing the size of Jesus Christ. There were a lot of heresies swirling around Colossae in this church, the Colossian believers. And in the church, there were teachers popularizing the idea that you had to worship angels as mediators to God, that you had to uh, follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws and other extra-biblical regulations in order to be closer to God. They were, there was sort of a pre-Gnosticism where people would say, hey, in order to be a special elite in the special elite tribe of thinkers, you need to have the special, deeper knowledge. But most importantly, more than all of that, people were popularizing the idea that Jesus Christ wasn't fully God in the flesh. That he wasn't the God-man. He was just a really good teacher. Maybe he was Superman, but he wasn't God-man. He was not the Savior who's come to save. He wasn't fully divine. That was the most insidious heresy that was being popularized in Colossae. And so Paul takes his brush, Colossians chapter 1, and he paints this beautiful portrait, this picture of Jesus Christ, so that they wouldn't lose sight of how big, how supreme, how immense Jesus Christ is, and who he is, and what he did for us and for our salvation. And so, for them and for us, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to paint this beautiful portrait, this picture of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul likely had never actually been to Colossae. Probably one of the followers that he had discipled or perhaps evangelized in Ephesus went to Colossae and evangelized there. There's evidence that he did not go to Colossae himself, but hoped to maybe come there. But he's writing because he's hearing about the big heresy, that people are telling believers in Colossae that Jesus Christ has a much smaller portrait 
that he really isn't the ultimate, that he really isn't the ruler. And so he writes, starting in verse 10. Here's the idea that he launches off of. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. He's praying for them. And he's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. With all wisdom and power. Okay? So that, in verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now he's going to start the picture. In order that they might walk in a manner worthy of God's call on their lives, in order that they might joyously with thanks follow Jesus Christ with whole hearts, They need to see how supreme Jesus is, how incomparable he is. So verse 13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's my first point. Picture the Son. Jesus rescues. Jesus rescues. We were face down, Floating, this is what John Greening has often said, face down, floating, dead in the cesspool of our, in the muck of our sin. And Jesus Christ came and he pulled us out and he breathed life into us and saved us and gave us new life and eternal life and a relationship with him. Jesus Christ rescued us, brought us from darkness, utter darkness, lostness. These are terms we kind of throw around, but I think we just glaze over. And I want us to just sit on these terms for a little bit. Darkness, utter darkness, lost. And Jesus Christ was the means by which God rescued us and brought us to light, saved you and saved me. That's the first thing that Jesus Christ did. He rescues. Jesus rescues, but Jesus redeems. Look in verse 14. In whom we have, okay, through Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This idea of being bought back, really the picture that would bend in the minds of the Colossians when they heard this would be of a slave owned by a master. And then, and being sold into slavery and be imprisoned into the, into the work of that master. And then Jesus Christ coming and saying, you know what, I, no, I'm, you're mine. You're mine. I bought you. I paid the price. I'm taking you back. From darkness... We were slaves to sin, Paul says in other places. Slaves to sin. Under the world system of the devil. And Jesus Christ came and says, no, I'm buying you back. But there's the appositional phrase here. Paul says, the redemption is seen in the forgiveness of sins. We're slaves to sin, and Jesus Christ has bought us back. 
Has this been ever in your life? Pride. Can you all see this? Envy, anger, immorality, abuse, hate, bitterness, strife, theft, lust, confusion, disobedience, dishonesty, disrespect. And the idea that redemption shows us is that Jesus Christ says, no more. Can I get an amen? He wiped the slate clean. Hallelujah. You see what Paul was shouting with thanks, I praise God, because he's rescued us and he's redeemed us. He's wiped our slate clean so there is no more record of lust on your record. There's no more record of theft on your record. There's no more record of pride on your record. There's no more record of disrespect or disobedience or anger or abuse on your record because Jesus Christ wiped the slate clean. No more marks, no more specks, no more sin. Jesus Christ redeemed us. He forgave us of our sin. He bought us back from the slavery of our sin. That's what Jesus did. He rescues, he redeems, and he rules. Jesus rules. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is, here's another way to think about this. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus said in John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You getting this? So Jesus Christ came so that we could see the Father. He came to glorify the Father, which means to put the Father on display, to make known what the Father is like, his character, his work, his grace, and all its fullness, and grace and truth. John, 14, or John 1, 14 through 18. So Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we don't really understand. When we think firstborn, the first thought that probably came to your mind was, okay, so Jesus was born? No. Jesus was never a created being. He always was and is and always will be. He's eternal, coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. Together, the Godhead three in one. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the position. Jesus Christ is the first in rank. If you're a firstborn son, the position of firstborn son means, in ancient culture, you get, you're the chief heir. You're in charge. When the father passes away, you are the one who rules from that point forward. Jesus Christ in that position as the chief heir. Okay? rules over the creation that he's created. That's where he goes. He is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. So obviously he's over his creation, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Just make sure, making sure that he's got everything. All things, everything, have been created through him and for him. That's Jesus Christ. So what he's done, he rescues, he redeems, he rules. For by him all things were created. I just want to read this again. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones. He's over the President of the United States. He's over the UN. He's over the entire universe. 
verse 17. He is before all things. He's first. Jesus Christ is first. And in him all things hold together. It's interesting, in Colossae, they had a lot of earthquakes. Frequent earthquakes. Jesus Christ is pictured here as the conductor of a symphony. And the symphony is the universe. Are you seeing this picture of Christ? Picture the sun. How you tonight view the sun, the size of your picture of Christ will impact the measure of your faith on Jesus' mission. Okay? The measure of how you view Christ will be the measure of your joy and obedience as you serve Christ. Jesus is the conductor of the symphony which is the universe. And he's not going to drop the ball. Superman, he can stop a speeding train or an airplane or even a bullet. Jesus Christ holds every particle in the universe together. Every particle in the universe is held in balance as if he's the conductor. He's over everything. That's our God. That's Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and in in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He's in charge of Evangel Baptist Church and every other church. (laughs) That should be a relief. He is the beginning, the firstborn. Here it is again, first in rank. He's over all. He's the chief heir firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus Christ rules. Think about it this way. Christ's supremacy, only through Christ's supremacy, his rule, only through Christ's supremacy is God's rescue plan possible. Individually. Jesus Christ is supreme in your life. You've received God's rescue. Right? And when the church follows Jesus as the supreme ruler and as its head, they go on God's rescue mission. And there's one day when Jesus Christ will rule over the earth on the throne of David and the earth will be rescued, restored, remade. Jesus rules. He's the symphony conductor of the universe. And he's in charge of the church Jesus rescues, Jesus redeems, Jesus rules, and Jesus reconciles. How many of you have heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Yeah, a good number of you are from the South. My wife is from the South. I've heard about the Hatfields and the McCoys. We had a McCoy, actually, in an old church I was a part of, and he used to joke. I guess he actually had relatives who were part of the real McCoy clan. So we didn't really want to mess with them. Well, for over a hundred years, the Hatfields and the McCoys were constantly at war, killing each other, fighting over everything, over pieces of land, and abusing one another, and kidnapping, and ransom, all this crazy stuff. And then something happened about 30 years ago. Some of them got saved. Read the story. They reconciled, where there was constant, it was like the fable of the United States, the Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah, they kill and fight each other all the time. 
Jesus Christ had this in this, we are in this position apart from him where we are at enmity, at hostility. The wrath of God abides on those who don't believe. But Jesus, but Jesus reconciled you, if you're in Christ, reconciled me to the Father through the cross. Look down at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. So does this mean that everybody's saved and going to heaven? No, no. Even, there's, even though there's some pastors that have tried to sell that bill of goods. Jesus Christ's death on the cross to provide peace between mankind and God is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. But it's up to you and to me to exercise faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished for the reconciliation, our reconciliation. Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, here's the picture for you and for me. Hmm, One already fell off. Can you see this? Have you ever felt guilty? Have you walked in darkness? You felt like your life is in prison. You feel like your world is surrounded by wrath and anger and hate. See, the other things are that I erased, what Jesus has forgiven us, things that we do. This is really the position, the, 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 uh, what we are without Christ. We're guilty. We're in prison. We're in darkness. The wrath of God abides on us. We're filled with fear and shame. And when Jesus reconciled us to himself through the blood of the cross, he turned darkness into light and guilt into grace. And those who are in prison are free. And wrath becomes peace. Fear is replaced with hope. Shame is replaced with love, light, peace, grace through the blood of his cross. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. Jesus reconciles. We've got to praise him tonight. (laughs) He's that good. He's that good. Jesus Christ has reconciled us. But here's where the Apostle Paul goes. It applies to us now. So if Jesus has reconciled you, if he has rescued you, redeemed you, and you know that he's the ruler, and you know that he has brought you to God, now it's your, your, your joyful, loving action to live in the Son. And here's what happens. Verse 21. He wants to make sure that you and I don't forget. We can forget where we were. That at one time we had the wrath of God on us. That at one time our lives were filled with fear. That at one time our lives were filled with shame. That at one time our lives were filled with guilt. 
So verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Don't, don't forget that. Because when you remember where, you, where God has brought you, then your heart's again filled with praise and zeal to love him in return. And it amplifies the picture of Christ. And although you are formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now again reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, that's the cross, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Praise God. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. So if you've been rescued and if you've been redeemed and if you've been reconciled, and you are under Christ's rule. The mark of genuine faith in Christ is endurance in the faith. So we live in Christ. We live in the Son. We live on His mission. We are filled with the same passion. No, no, no. Greater passion to tell people about Him than we would be if we found a million-dollar comic book. Because Jesus Christ has immense, endless, incomparable value and worth that surpasses everything and anyone. He has now reconciled you in his body. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And here's the last point. Picture the sun, okay? Live in the sun, now hope in the sun. 23b. And not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. He is the gospel. He is the blessed hope of the church. Therefore, live in the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made minister. I think Paul points to this fact that he was he was, he was made a minister, made a proclaimer of the gospel to further verify the fact that Jesus Christ is fully divine, that he is the God-man. He isn't just Superman. He isn't just a great teacher. He is the God-man, the supreme ruler, sovereign over all creation. So they th- should think about, hey, Jesus Christ called him. I've heard that story about how Jesus met him on the road. not moved away from hope. So picture the sun, live in the sun, hope in the sun. Because only through, the, only through Christ's supremacy over all things is God's rescue plan possible for you and for me individually. This is how it works in the church. This is how it will ultimately work over the entire earth. Jesus Christ is the hope of the church. He should be our hope. So live in the sun. I heard a story from Pastor Pierpont a long time ago when he was teaching me how to preach in Flint, Michigan. A pastor came in to an acting theater, like the Fox Theater. And he paid $20 to get in to see this amazing actor who would perform a dramatic monologue for two hours And the place was packed out as the pastor got his seat. He noticed, man, this place, there's not a seat left. Everybody paid to get in. And this actor stands up and he goes for two hours. And after he's done, he was such an amazing actor that everybody stood and applauded and wanted more. 
afterwards, the pastor had a chance to talk to this actor. And the pastor said, I don't get it. Every Sunday, I stand in front of my congregation and I preach. And after 25 or 30 minutes, people start looking at their watch. Some of them just walk out the door. And they certainly don't applaud when I'm done. And they don't pay to get in. And the place isn't packed. What's going on? What's the problem? And the actor turned to the pastor and he said, Here's the deal. I tell people stuff that's not really true, as if it's really, really, really true. And you stand before your church and you tell them what is true, as if it's not really true. I wonder if our picture of Christ has gotten so whittled down, shrunk, small, that we seem to value the comic book. We talk more about Superman, Man of Steel, about finding a comic book more than we would about Jesus Christ. Or if we do, we kind of talk about him like he's not really real. He's not supreme ruler, like he's not the great sovereign that he is. And Jesus Christ is calling you and me on a mission to tell people about him and he's coming again, and he is real. And it's not fiction, it's fact. He's reality. Tonight, I, I want to call you to renew your picture of the sun and to live in the sun and hope in the sun every day. Every day. Today, I want to start tonight. And I want you to pray with me that we as a church would live with that big picture of Christ in our hearts and soak our minds with the word of God because the more we know the word, the more we'll know Christ and the more the world will see us, see him in us. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh God, we ask that you would change us, that you would help us to have a big picture of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would not lose sight of how great, how awesome, how supreme, how incomparable, how immense he is, how endless his love is for us and for the lost, how shocking, how amazing his work is for us for, on the cross. We pray, O oh God, that we would not lose sight of him, that we would follow after your son, Jesus Christ, and live with his hope in mind Live with eternity in mind so that in the present we live like there's no tomorrow and tell people about him as if he really is, because he is, the only one, our Savior and friend, the returning and coming King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.